I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Hi, this is Nick Pelizzi from The Sacred Science, and I'm really excited for our interview today with Graham Hancock, best-selling author of Fingerprints of the Gods, as well as a bunch of other brilliant books. I read Fingerprints about 15 years ago, and it shook up everything I thought I knew about where we come from as humans. It forced me to toss up half of what I learned in my anthropology classes and inspired me to start exploring on my own and take nothing as a given about our past as humans. Graham, it's an honor to be here with you today. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? And very good to be with you. Yeah, it's an honor. I've I've given your book, I've given Fingerprints of the Gods to probably, I want to say, at least 15 people. Um, over the years, it's something I keep an extra copy of because it's had that kind of an impact on the way I, th- I think about the world. Um, that makes me feel that what I do is worthwhile then. <laughs> I, I guess so. That and the millions of copies that you probably sold, sold of, all of, your, all of your books. Yeah, you know, it, that's, all very, that's all very remote. But, but, but actually, when one person tells me that my book has made a difference to their life, that really has an impact on me. 
Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you this, the, the, um, you know, as people, as our community knows, you know, a lot of our work is in Peru and your book was part of the reason why I went down to Peru the first time I went down, which is probably 2001. So it, it started me exploring this stuff. So it really is one of those right. beautiful little catalysts. So I just, for our community, you know, a lot of our people know who you are already, but for anybody who doesn't, can you just give us a brief background on who you are and, and, and what, how you came to start investigating these lost civilizations of our past? So, well, first of all, what I'm not, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not any kind of ist, including a scientist. I'm a writer. I don't claim to be anything else than that. I'm a person who writes books, who gets engaged in mysteries, who explores those mysteries, who investigates them, and who writes about them. And the mysteries that have particularly concerned me over the last 25 years are the mysteries of the the human past, our our story as a species. Do we have anything like the whole story at the moment? Or are we planning our future with only random fragments of knowledge uh, about our past? And I I happen to think that we are missing some very important uh, information from our past. And uh, I've really dedicated my life, certainly for the last quarter of a century, to drawing that information out, to providing a a coherent, thoroughly argued, well-documented, alternative take on history. Um, There is a mainstream view. It's taught in our schools, in our universities. It's reflected by all of the big media about the origins of uh, civilization. Um, that, that view sees the first great cities and, and uh, the first signs of what we would regard as fully fledged civilizations about five and a half thousand years ago. Uh, before that, there's a long period of agricultural development. Before that, our ancestors are supposed to have been just hunter-gatherers, simple, simple hunter-gatherers during the, the last ice age. And my work has focused on the last ice age, a, a cataclysmic, tumultuous period that began about 125,000 years ago, ended very recently, just 11,500 years ago. Uh, I've I've focused on that and I'm considering the possibility that as well as hunter-gatherers, who certainly did live in the world at that time, there was also a much more advanced and highly organized civilization present on the planet. Um, and that often takes people aback. But if you consider uh, that's the case today, we have a highly organized uh, technological civilization and we coexist on the planet with hunter-gatherers, hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari Desert, hunter-gatherers in the Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. For example, some of the hunter-gatherers in the Amazon rainforest don't even know we exist. <laughs> so it's perfectly possible for technological civilizations to coexist on one planet with with peoples at a, at a hunter-gatherer level of development. And I think that's what, what happened. And I've, I've, I've tried to draw out the evidence and put it before readers in a manner that is accessible uh, and, and makes sense, that, that really everything we've been taught about the origins of civilization is probably very likely wrong. We need to start again, reconsidering the story of our past. So before you, before you wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, you were, you were an author, you, but you've written about entirely different, sort of entirely different topics. I mean, so what was, the, what was the, the moment where you realized, wait, or was there a moment where you realized, wait, this, is, this has been great, but I, I now need to shift directions here? 
No, it wasn't really. It wasn't really a moment. It's just the way life works, you know. For all of us, we get we get drawn in particular directions, and and those directions then take us in other directions that we perhaps didn't didn't expect at all. So in in my case, I was a journalist. I was the East Africa correspondent for the Economist. I was based in Nairobi. I traveled widely around the. East African region reporting current affairs. And I had absolutely no interest in history, but I did know a good story when I saw one. And yes. in Ethiopia, which was on my beat, I saw a good story way back in 1982 or 1983, which is the claim that the Ethiopians make to possess the lost Ark of the Covenant, as in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and indeed, I found myself in the, the sacred city where this object is said to be kept and talking to the monk who guarded it in the middle then of a, of a war zone. It was very dramatic uh, and it intrigued me. And, and um, I wasn't making my living from that. I was a current affairs guy. But I, I kind of began to look at this on the back burner while I was doing other things. And the more I looked into it, the more it grabbed me. It just kind of sunk a hook into me that there were really huge unexplained mysteries in the past. And here and I have been spending my working life looking at mysteries in the present, uh, but actually lots of people are doing that. Mysteries in the past is, um, is potentially a much more fertile field because we build up and create our civilization upon the ideas that we have about the past. And, and uh, sh we really need to be sure that those ideas are right. So I felt that there was, uh, was a place for me in that. And I, and, and I became intrigued by the mysteries of the past, so much so that uh, by the mid 1980s, I'd completely lost interest in current affairs, uh, 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 which, rema which remains, you know, largely to, to this day. I'm, I'm just wrapped up and intrigued by the mysteries of, of the past. And it's our past. It's our, it's our story. This, is, this belongs to us as a, as a species, and we should not be alienated from it. We should not uh, create classes of specialists who claim that they know everything about the past and that they can actually tell us what to think about the past. I think there's a role for individuals um, undertaking explorations on their own initiative. Um, and that's basically what, what I did. I began to explore on my, on, on, on my own initiative, but I felt it was important to do justice to the subject, that I should do so in a, in a solid thoroughly researched way, not, not just go off on any old tangent that appealed to me. How, how does your colleagues from you know, The Economist and, and, and your journalistic past you know, respond to, to your, new, your new passion, your new area of focus? Well, they all thought I was pretty weird anyway. You know. <laughs> so it kind of made sense in a strange sort of way. Okay, Hancock's gone off on another, you know, Another curiosity, well, fine. Um, and, and uh, you know, it just suited me much better. Not, not only, uh, not only the, the issue of investigating the, the mysteries of the past, which is a very exciting pursuit, but also expressing what I'd found in, in books rather than in articles for newspapers and magazines. Mm -hmm. um, I, I find that my natural length as a writer is book length. The, the, the 300 word article for The Economist is not my natural metier. I can do it, but um, there's so much more to say and, and, I want to, and I want to say it. So books allow me, that, allow me that indulgence. So I'm writing books about a subject that, that, fascinate, that fascinates me and that I'm passionate about. That's, that's what I am, that's what I do. Thank God you do it. I, and, and I want to get to your, get to your new book in a little while, but 
Um, I wanted to ask you first, uh, you know, our community, as you know, it's, it's focused on, you know, ancestral healing methods, ancestral rites, shamanism, um, you know, folk herbalism, to name a few. Have you come across anything in recent history, you know, or not recent history, but in your recent history, um, that really begs to be looked at, begs to be under, you know, uh, focused on a little more by modern science or just, just by us, you know, us yeah. pedestrians? Look, I'm not a, an ethnopharmacologist um, mm -hmm. at, at, at all. I'm not, I'm not out there looking for, for substances. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get at the truth, what, whatever, whatever the truth is. And it so happened that um, uh, back in the early parts of the years 2000, around about um, 2002, after I had finished uh, a huge book called Underworld, uh, about again investigating the possibility of a lost civilization, a book that that required me to scuba dive all around the world for the best part of seven years, researching that. But after I'd finished that book, I kind of felt at that point, I was to review that decision later. But I kind of felt, you know, I've done it with the lost civilization thing. I've presented all the information that that I have to present. For Christ's sake, I spent seven years, you know, scuba diving in the most extreme conditions in order to, to bring back the, the evidence of structures submerged by rising sea levels at the end of the last ice age. Now I want to do something different. And uh, I, you know, I set myself initially a broad task of, of looking into human origins. Was there, was there a mystery there? Was there, I felt sure there must, be, there must be many. And that eventually uh, led me to psychedelics. It led me. It led me to psychedelics because what I found is that the the story of human origins, the the, the six million or so years between the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee and us, is largely a very dull story without very much happening. And the most you know incredibly limited stone tools eventually being invented and then just stuck with for for millions and millions of years. I mean, our ancestors were apparently incredibly boring. And then, but then suddenly, you know, after about a hundred thousand years ago, something amazing happens, and and it's particularly clear after about forty thousand years ago, we start to see this amazing and and majestic art being painted in the caves. Not only in in Europe, the European caves are are, are famous, but actually this art is found all over the world. And when we look at that art, some of which is incredibly ancient, forty thousand years old or, or more, when we look at it, we immediately know that we're dealing with creatures such as ourselves. We're dealing with fellow human beings and they are documenting some kind of experience here. And, and uh, it so happens that I have to pay tribute to the great, the late, great Terence McKenna with his prescient book, uh, Food of the Gods. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's also keep in mind that a number of academics like Professor David Lewis Williams at the University of Witwatersrand have been working on this issue for decades. Lewis Williams' work goes back to the, to the 1970s and he essentially argues that the commonalities that we find in rock and cave art all around the world are best explained um, by the notion that this is a shamanistic art, that this is an art of uh, visions, that shamans are experiencing deeply altered states of consciousness and then are returning to the normal alert problem-solving state of consciousness and are painting their visions. Um, this is what makes sense of everything. And that, that, that uh, theory 
um, really has over the last 30 years taken the mainstream by storm. And it is very much, it's one of the few areas where I find myself in pretty much in agreement with the mainstream. The, the, the commonalities of cave art are explained by um, their, the underlying structures of, uh, of, of shamanism. And of course, such art is still being created today. Um, in the Amazon, where they drink uh, the sacred brew ayahuasca, um, they very frequently, the, the shamans will very frequently paint the visions that they have seen. So here was a way for me to um, penetrate directly into the past, not simply sit in an armchair, but actually have the experiences that those ancient shamans are thought to have had. And that's why I first went down to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca, which of course I had, I had already heard about. Uh, as I say, I'm not an ethnopharmacologist. I'm not out there researching new substances. But here was a, a brew, a mixture of two different uh, Amazonian plants, which was regarded as, a, as an entry to the spirit world um, by, by shamans, uh, which I could drink myself and therefore I could uh, engage authentically with, with those experiences. So that's what led me to the Amazon and to drinking ayahuasca and in, eventually to writing a book called Supernatural Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind, which certainly wasn't a book about a lost civilization. It was a book about altered states of consciousness and shamanism and their, and their role in the, in the human story. Well, having had those initial experiences in the Amazon, um, I found that ayahuasca was a lot more for me than just a research project. It was a research project, and, and, and I learned a lot from it, and, and I couldn't have written that book if I hadn't drunk ayahuasca. But I found that I wanted to continue, that I had to actually brace myself in order to want to continue, but that oddly, I did want to continue. These experiences are very tough, they're very physically demanding, they can be extremely psychically demanding as well, and yet I felt there was more for me to learn. Um, and so I, I do regard ayahuasca as a, as a profound uh, healing and teaching agent in my, in my life. It has, it has played a very positive and, and constructive role in my life, uh, in my writing, and indeed in, in all aspects of my, of my work. Um, and, and if I'm not branching too far away from your original question, one of the intriguing things about my ayahuasca experiences for me, and I've now had certainly more than 60 uh, ayahuasca experiences over the last, um, I don't know, 12, 12 years or so. Um, an aspect of that has been the nurturing of a side of my creativity that I wasn't even aware of before. Um, I got a very strong uh, message in a series of ayahuasca sessions in Brazil that I should try to write a novel. That, that, and indeed, I was given a story. And, and therefore, from having been a lifelong non-fiction author, former journalist, very much concerned with the facts, I found myself immersed in a new form of expression, which I don't believe would ever have happened to me if I hadn't worked with, with ayahuasca. I was shown the way to do it, and I, and I did do it. So, so I'm, I'm intrigued and fascinated um, that, that ancient cultures all around the world investigated the plants that, that grow on our planet and explored those plants and found their properties and worked out ways to engage those properties with social, with nurturing and positive social frameworks. Um, and my goodness, I mean, we just have so much to learn from them in the West today. The, the big pharma model of dealing 
with the generosity of nature is just so horrible and so and so wrong that that you know that the time has come for us to sit at the feet of the shamans, of the hunter-gatherer societies, the meek of the earth, who have pursued their path for tens of thousands of years and learn from them. Couldn't agree more. I, you know, another sacred plant from Peru, coca plant. You know, there's, there's, I know a few shamans that specialize only in coca. They only eat coca. Um, it's something that, that an intriguing thing that I, I'm, it's been known for a while. I just, I, I just was made aware of it maybe two years ago was the discovery of coca in mummies in Sudan and in Egypt. You know, which it feels like it fits perfectly into fingerprints of the guy. I mean, it fits perfectly into your entire structure. Well, it does, because, because in all my, my books on the issue of, uh, of a lost, lost civilization, I'm saying really that we should question everything that we're taught by, by history. History gets relatively more solid the more recent it becomes. You know, where you have documents to draw upon, um, your, your, your history is likely to be much more reliable than when you don't, when you're just piecing it together from your impressions and potsherds that you dig out of the ground. So it's the view of historians, even looking at the relatively recent past, that there was no uh, contact across the Atlantic Ocean until the time of Columbus. The old world and the new world were supposed to be uh, completely isolated from one another until Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Um, that's a dogma. That's actually a theory dressed up as a fact. It isn't a fact. There is nothing to prove that there was no contact between the old world and the new prior to the time of Columbus. And this discovery of cocaine in Egyptian mummies, together with tobacco in Egyptian mummies raises serious questions over that notion that the ancients were not in communication with one another because both cocaine and tobacco are indigenous new world plants and they were not available in the old world uh, at all you know so suddenly we find them in the old world in a genuine context a very old context 3002 or 3300 years old from ancient Egypt his mummies with cocaine and nicotine in them. And the research is very thorough. The provenance is clear. This speaks of, a, of transatlantic journeys, uh, of, of, of a bringing together of the so-called old worlds and new worlds. And perhaps they were never apart. Again, it's another one of those issues that we need to you know, think again about very, very carefully in our approach to history. And and these the claims by you know by modern science that these that these wrappings might have been tampered with or it could have been you know something else besides what it seemed what it appears to be you think that that's pretty much hogwash just trying to you know defend defend a theory so that they don't I, I have think to... that's hogwash or, or or clutching at straws uh, as a matter of fact Babalanova's work is is very thorough and and I've looked into this in some depth and I don't believe that there was any contamination I think that's been effectively ruled out but you can see the scholars who in, who are invested in the model whereby there is not supposed to have been any contact between the old worlds and the new just scrambling you know just rushing clutching at any straw that they can clutch at uh, to stop this new information from overwhelming them and this is the problem with our approach to history uh, and 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 archaeology it, it, it uh, it's a problem in other areas of research and investigation as well, but, but it's particularly severe in this problem. See, good science should work this way. Uh, we have a theory. We, we find new facts that contradict or modify the theory. We then 
modify the theory to take account of the new facts. Not so in archaeology and history. There it is the theory of the past that is predominant. Uh, and if new facts emerge which contradict that theory, the tendency, the tendency is to throw those facts out and to keep the theory rather than to change the theory. So, so we become very... We become very invested in history, in the statements of great men. Certain authorities have made a statement about the past, and that statement actually may not have been grounded on really solid and detailed research, but because it comes from some great figure, it's kind of accepted as a fact. And magically, over a period of time, usually a few decades, what was originally the opinion of some authority actually transforms itself magically into a fact. So we may read in any uh, Egyptological textbook, in any teaching about ancient Egypt that is done in schools or universities, that the great sphinx of Giza was built, well, built is the wrong word for a star because it's cut out of solid rock, was, was created by the pharaoh Khafre in the fourth dynasty of the old kingdom around 2500 BC. Actually, there isn't a shred of evidence to support that view, not a thing. There's not a single contemporary inscription that describes the creation of the Sphinx. Indeed, there's absolute silence of it in ancient Egyptian texts until well over a thousand years after the date at which it's supposed to have been made. There is nothing that says that Khafre built the Sphinx. It's only a series of suppositions by Egyptologists based on their supposition about the pyramid that stands behind the Sphinx, which is also completely anonymous and lacking in any inscriptions. They make these suppositions, they say, yeah, Khafre built the Sphinx. And then that is actually an opinion. But as time passes, it becomes, it assumes the status of a fact and it starts being taught in schools and universities. We have to question all of this. So there's no grand scheme. There's no grand cover-up. It really is just human, human, ten, you know, humanism. It's, it's just, it's just us, us being, us, us having ego, people having egos and wanting to defend themselves and not be wrong. Yeah, it's human beings being dicks, basically. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, I don't think it's a grand conspiracy. Sometimes I wonder. Um, I, I've, I have found a consistent thread in analysis of the past, which is a resistance to any attempt to explain past events cataclysmically. Uh, those, those, the, 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 the trend in scholarship is to seek to explain all past events in what's called a uniformitarian way, that, that things have happened gradually uh, and, and gently and, and rather politely. And there seems to be a sort of dislike of any cat catastrophist uh, notion. And yet, you know, why? Because we know that cataclysms, catastrophes do play an important part uh, in the life of the earth. Nobody seriously disputes now that the dinosaurs were made extinct around 66 or 65 million years ago by uh, a gigantic cosmic impact. And that was a world-changing event. Once the dinosaurs were swept out of the way, these skulking little mammals that looked like shrews at the time were able to evolve and occupy niches that had been unavailable to them and they became us you know we are we would not be here if that cosmic event had not that impact 65 or 66 million years ago hadn't wiped out the dinosaurs so cataclysms do occur on the earth uh, and 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 may have interacted with human history much more often and much more radically than we are currently being taught. And this too has been an aspect of my research. Is it conventionally accepted that, th that this comment that you talk about in, in your new book 
that wipe that that hit at was it twelve thousand? Twelve thousand eight hundred years ago. Is that is that is that accepted or is that something that is still kind of looked at as a possibility, not necessarily you know something that happened? It's disputed, um, as, as is often the case in science. In this case, what we have is a team of around about thirty. Uh, very highly credentialed earth scientists, uh, geologists, people who studied, study isotopes, people who study the ocean, very highly qualified people. Nobody's in any doubt about their credentials. Um, and, and they have been publishing in the heat of the peer-reviewed press uh, for almost a decade now, since, since 2007 every year presenting more and more new evidence that can only be interpreted one way, that there was a gigantic series of cosmic impacts very recently, 12,800 years ago, on a scale similar to the impact that destroyed the dinosaurs. It was slightly different in the way that it, that it fell through, but, but the scale is roughly similar. We're looking at an extinction level event, and this is, and this is documented by clear, um, chemical and mineral traces uh, in, in the soil. There's really a huge amount of evidence in support of this. Now, do all scientists accept that evidence? No, they don't. There's a, there's a serious dispute about it. Every single paper that's been published by the team, for example, in the Journal of Geology or the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, has been attacked and attempts have been made to refute it. And on every single occasion, the team have refuted those refutations. And so the, the dialogue goes on. Right now, it's, it's very clear. I don't think anybody is arguing that something really bad happened to the Earth between 12,800 years ago and 11,600 years ago. And what I've tried to show in Magicians of the Gods, and I've considered the criticisms too, is that the, the overwhelming weight of the evidence supports the view that we are dealing with a giant comet, perhaps 100 kilometers in diameter originally, that broke up into multiple fragments. Some of those fragments hit the Earth 12,800 years ago. There were further impacts 11,600 years ago. It looks like there were related impacts coming out of that same debris stream uh, in the Bronze Age. The most recent impact um, was the Tunguska event in 1908, because that debris stream is something we know about. It's called the, the torrid meteor stream. It is the frag fragmented debris of a former single huge object. Uh, and, and there are many large objects still in the torrid meteor stream, such as Comet Enki, which is a fragment of the original comet, uh, Olgiato, Rudniki, uh, uh, other objects in the range of one to five kilometers in diameter, any one of which could, would have catastrophic effects if it were to collide with the Earth today. And calculations show many more objects uh, in that meteor stream. And the problem is the Earth crosses that stream twice a year. So in a strange kind of way, we are engaged with and connected to the problems that our ancestors faced 12 and a half thousand years ago. We, we have not escaped from that. The business of that comet with us is not yet done. Um, and, and uh, you know, all of this requires, requires, I think, a new approach to the past, because if we can really, if we can really understand what happened 12,800 years ago, right in the foundations of history, two things are definitely going to happen. One is that we are, as I said at the beginning, going to have to think again about everything we've been taught about the origins of civilization, because the models in schools and universities for the origins of civilization do not take account 
of an extinction-level cataclysm right in the foundations of, uh, of history. Uh, and secondly, we're going to have much better information uh, about the predicament of our planet today uh, and what risks we face from the torrid meteor stream and indeed from other uh, potential impactors uh, out there in the in the cosmos. I don't want to spread gloom and doom. I don't want to tell a scare story. I just think it's important that we don't stick our heads in the sand. We, we are looking at a danger which need not be the end of anything. We are perfectly capable of solving this problem. It, it's long overdue, as a matter of fact, that, that some of our technology and some of our colossal treasure should be spent on sweeping the cosmic environment of the Earth clean and making it safe for future generations. It's foolish and irresponsible not to do that. Uh, and, and if we understand clearly what happened 12,800 years ago, I think it will provide us with the incentive to do that, and I hope it will do so in time. Something about this, this, this idea of, you know, um, the comet hitting, and you, you mentioned that it might have caused the great flood, you know, the melting of the ice caps, the rising, well, the rising the great, of the yeah. ocean. The great flood, uh, I mean, again, we have to, you know, this is, a, this is a, a, an approach that comes from many different directions. Earth scientists are looking at the fingerprints in the ground of a gigantic cosmic cataclysm of the nano diamonds, of the trinitite, that's like melt glass. That's the sort of melt glass that you get in nuclear explosions. Evidence of, of temperatures across huge areas of the Earth's surface in excess of the boiling point of quartz. That's 2,200 degrees centigrade. Um, you know, we are, we are, we are looking at a, at a very, very massive uh, and, and, and serious problem here. I just love the idea that uh, this idea of reinterpreting the, our, the, what we read in you know, religious texts as not being this kind of theory not, or not being like this, um, this, this mythology. Like we look at the great exactly. flood, like, oh, isn't, it, isn't that a, a quaint way of describing some spiritual concept? No, they were actually report, might have actually been reporting on what, what they knew. What they, you know, and and it's, it's maybe part of this. And, and again, this is probably I'm hesitant to talk about it because I don't this isn't my area of specialty. But there's this it's a uh, it's almost the subtle reinterpretation we do of religious texts to be something that is nothing related to real history. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. And, and this, is, this is the point, because as I was saying, the earth scientists are producing hard evidence of a giant cataclysm 12,800 years ago, a cataclysm that was associated with massive flooding. The primary impacts of those comet fragments were on the North American ice cap, this was the ice age. That ice cap was still the best part of a mile and a half, perhaps two miles deep, okay? And the colossal heat and kinetic energy released by these impacts caused tumultuous floods to pour down across, for example, the, the, the channeled scablands of, of Washington State in the, in the United States, uh, and also into the, into the world's oceans, raising sea levels very, very rapidly. So suddenly it isn't just a kind of whimsical curiosity that there are more than 2,000 flood myths all around the world, of which the best known, of course, is the flood of Noah uh, in, the, in the Bible. This ceases to be, you know, just a curiosity of mythology, and suddenly we really have to ask ourselves, are we looking at eyewitness reports of mm -hmm. what happened 12,800 years ago when something so bad occurred that it seemed to those who lived through it like the end of the world? 
it was as big or bigger than what happened to the dinosaurs, but it didn't. But everyone didn't go extinct. It didn't. It didn't terminate. No. Terminate all of us. It did not extinguish all life, and it did not extinguish all human life. Uh, it's pretty clear that the human species went through a bottleneck uh, at this time, but that. But certainly, there were survivors, and I believe that those survivors were of both types, both the hunter-gatherers. Uh, and peoples from advanced civilization. And I think that those survivors from the lost advanced civilization set about trying to recreate what they had lost. They set about trying to recreate the, what is referred to in the texts as the former world of the gods. Um, it had been stripped away from them, destroyed, but their, their project was to restart it. And in, and in seeking to restart it, the obvious place to go was to settle down amongst the hunter-gatherers who had also survived. In fact, it's quite likely that the hunter-gatherers of, of that time uh, had a better prospect of surviving the cataclysm than civilized peoples, as would be the case today. I mean, if we were to be struck by multiple fragments of a giant comet today, um, I very much doubt that Western technological society would make it through. I think it would not. It, it's a very fragile society. It depends on interconnected specialisms um, and, and um, the, the bonds that tie it together are, are, are weak, actually. We look strong, but that's only on the large scale. When you get down into detail, you find that everything is very fragile and nobody knows how to survive. No, I mean, very few people have the faintest clue, but who does know how to survive are the hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari or the Amazon rainforest. They know how to survive, and, 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 and such a disaster might leave them relatively untouched. So I would suggest that it was amongst hunter-gatherers during the Ice Age that the survivors of the lost civilization settled, taking nurture and sustenance from them, but also seeking to transfer to them some of the knowledge that they had as an advanced civilization. And that's why the other intriguing development at the moment is the discovery of archaeological sites that don't make any sense in terms of the existing model of history. And of these, by far the most important is the site called Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which is a series of gigantic megalithic stone circles. Looks a bit like Stonehenge in a way, but it's about 50 times bigger than Stonehenge and 7,000 years older than Stonehenge. And whereas there's a background to Stonehenge, there's no background to Gobekli Tepe at all. Bang, right there in what is now southeastern Turkey in an area inhabited at the time entirely by hunter-gatherers with no agriculture whatsoever, suddenly appears a gigantic, sophisticated, very complicated megalithic site which could only have been created by people who already had experience of, of architecture, of cutting and moving stone, of organizing a building site and, and, and so on and so forth. And at the same moment that this extraordinary megalithic site appears, suddenly agriculture starts to disseminate in Turkey. The techniques of agriculture suddenly appear. They hadn't been present there at all. And, you know, I talked to the late Klaus Schmidt, who, Professor Dr. Klaus Schmidt, who was the excavator of Gobekli Tepe, and he put forward an idea that I thought was very interesting. Without, he did not want to buy into the lost civilization hypothesis at all. But looking at Gobekli Tepe, for him, what he sees it, what he sees it as is as a center of innovation. Um, it's, it's a place where new kinds of ideas spread out around Turkey. And 
I think that's exactly what it was. And I think that center of innovation was set up by the survivors of a lost civilization. So what we're seeing around Gobekli Tepe is not the sudden precocious invention uh, of megalithic architecture and all the skills to go with it by a hunter-gatherer people who'd never done anything like that before, and at the same time, the invention of agriculture. No, it's a transfer of technology from the survivors of a lost civilization to the hunter-gatherers who they had taken refuge uh, amongst. And, and when we take this into account with the date that Gobekli Tepe is founded 11,600 years ago, well, that's precisely the date of the second spike of cataclysm, uh, 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. And it's also the date that Plato gives us for the destruction and submergence of the lost civilization of Atlantis. He says that happened 9,000 years before the time of the Greek lawmaker Solon. Solon lived in 600 BC. Therefore, Plato's telling us that the submergence of Atlantis by huge floods and, and earthquakes in a single terrible day and night took place in our calendar in 9,600 BC, which is 11,600 years ago, which lo and behold, turns out to be the date of the foundation of Gobekli Tepe. I would strongly suggest by survivors of that lost civilization, which may never have called itself Atlantis, but nonetheless is Atlantis by any other name. I've heard you talk about this idea of this problem with our, with the, with our conventional way of looking at our past as, you know, with you know, simple society to sophisticated society overnight. No, no, like no smoking gun, no anything that shows there was anything in between. The Egyptians didn't have some, some mid language, you know, be, between, you know, whatever, whatever the hunter gatherers. The best stuff is right there at the beginning in ancient Egypt. And it's really difficult to explain that. And, and the way that my friend John Anthony West explains it is that what we need to understand is that Egyptian civilization was not a development. It was a legacy. And that's what the Egyptians themselves said. They said that their civilization was a legacy of the gods. And if you look in detail into their texts, as I have done, it becomes possible to consider that there may have been established at Giza more than 12 and a half thousand years ago, something like a monastery, uh, the purpose of which was to seek out and train and initiate a particularly promising members of the local population uh, and to inculcate in them the skills and technology and, and knowledge uh, of, of an advanced civilization. Um, what's interesting at Giza is that there seems to be, there's really strong evidence of a big project there, round about 12 and a half thousand years ago. Um, and I and my colleagues think that that is the time that the Great Sphinx was made, that the Great Sphinx has been radically misstated by archaeologists. There's got nothing to do with Khafre. Maybe Khafre came along and, and cleared it of sand and, and, and perhaps recarved the head. But he didn't make the Sphinx. The, the, the evidence for exposure to thousands of years of heavy rainfall on the body of the Sphinx leaves that clear. There's been no such rains in Egypt in the last 5,000 years. But you go back to the end of the Ice Age and you get, you get rains like that, you know. Um, so so um, really the whole, the whole story of, of Egypt needs to be considered much more carefully. Giza is a very nuanced site. Stuff happens there 12 and a half thousand years ago. Stuff happens there for sure four and a half thousand years ago in a big way. The fourth dynasty was doing big building projects around Giza. But did they actually make the Sphinx? Did they 
Perhaps they completed the pyramids, but did they did they create the ground platforms on which the pyramids are built? I'm not so sure. I think that the, the site is much older and that what links the two periods, 12,500 years ago and 4,500 years ago, the 8,000 year gap between those two periods, is something like a monastery, a wisdom cult, which is dedicated to preserving and passing on knowledge. I sometimes toy with the possibility that the original survivors of the lost civilization may have felt that they'd done something wrong. A lot of the traditions that speak of global cataclysm, that speak of floods, that speak of, that, 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 that speak of a time of darkness, of, of chaos, of destruction in the world, implicate humanity in the story. Actually, every one of them does, that, that we have fallen out of harmony with the universe, that we have um, ceased to regard the universe with reverent wonder and worship. Uh, Plato, when he talks about Atlantis, talks about a civilization that was once beautiful and pure, dedicated to the nurture of spirit, but that as time went by became arrogant, cruel, overconfident, proud, began to impose its will upon others uh, by force um, and uh, ceased to wear its prosperity with, uh, with moderation. This is the this is the view. So it's that that myth comes that notion comes down in many ancient traditions. So I think we have to consider the possibility that the survivors of the lost civilization, seeing the destruction of everything that they had wrought, may have felt that they had made an error, that there was some correction was needed. That perhaps perhaps now was the time to plant the seeds for the rebirth of civilization, but not to bring that civilization to maturity. To wait uh, to wait some time until the time was right. And that might have been signaled by the changing positions of, of stars in the sky, because there's a constant focus on astronomy and using astronomy as a timekeeping mechanism uh, in many of the ancient texts. Do you, do you feel that the, that the lost civilizations were as technologically advanced or more than we were? And I guess another, another, another you know, part B of that question is something that I feel like, you know, I'm obviously the advocate of your work, but the big hangup I think a lot of people have is, okay, so where are the buried computers? Where are the, where's the computer that's like 18,000? I mean, I think that there's sort of this notion that technology looks a certain way. Yeah, I'd no, love to sort of just talk about that. A certain way. And my answer to that is, if we really want to get to grips with history, let's stop looking at history as a mirror. Let's start looking at it as a window through which we actually see what happened, rather than projecting ourselves uh, onto, the, onto the past. There is no reason on earth why an earlier civilization should have followed the same technological route as us, even if it had the capacity to do so. It might have chosen for moral or other reasons uh, to do with the sacredness of the earth, not to exploit petrochemicals, for example. We've chosen to go that route. No, no certainty that an earlier civilization would have gone that route. And, in the route that we have chosen to take, we have placed great emphasis on mechanical advantage. We do things by leverage, by mechanical advantage. And we're very good at that. We do amazing things with, with that. Um, but perhaps we've allowed other faculties of the human mind to lapse in the process. We've become dependent on mechanical technology and other faculties of the human mind, which are spoken of in traditions all around the world, uh, the faculties of telekinesis of, uh, uh, for example, to move objects with the powers of, of the mind, uh, of, of uh, telepathy and so on and so forth, are spoken of again and again in ancient traditions. Maybe human beings in general have those capacities, but maybe we've gone to sleep 
we've been lulled into a state of sleep by our society. We're so proud of our technology. We're so impressed by its achievements. And my goodness, the achievements are extraordinary. Uh, they're overwhelming, actually, that we're just forgetting what else we might have done if we'd gone a different way. And I think that, that, that this is the answer, that, that the lost civilization of prehistoric antiquity was a very different civilization uh, from our own, and that it was not primarily about material things. It was primarily uh, about the nurture and growth of the human spirit. And that's reflected in the myths too, because it's when the lost civilization, Atlantis, or whatever we wish to call, call, it, call it, strays from that path, when it plunges into materialism, when it loses sight of its spiritual goal, that's when the danger occurs. Is there, is there any possibility that, that members of a civilization, in your opinion, could have survived and be somehow hidden among us still? No. Um, I think they were human beings just like us, but they are hidden amongst us in terms of their ideas. This is important to be clear. Um, ideas are what live or can live forever in human culture. And the idea of the lost civilization, of the magicians of the gods, of the civilizers who went around the world trying to keep that light of civilization burning, uh, that idea is very strongly impressed upon the memories of mankind. And no amount of rationalizing or scientific skepticism is going to get rid of it in our hearts. We all know it's true. So I've, I've heard you. I've heard you say and, and write that you know, and, and it's obviously it's it's factual that um, as much as factual can be factual that the Egyptians have put their best minds to work for three thousand years on the mystery of death. Yeah, and this, this touches exactly on what we're talking about just now, because the ancient Egyptians were the inheritors of an earlier tradition. It was the tradition, I believe, of a lost civilization, and the primary focus of that civilization was not upon material things and physical life, uh, but on uh, eternal things uh, and, and the possibility of eternal life. Now, typically of our society today, when we talk about eternal or immortal, immortal life, people start thinking in terms of transhumanism, you know, that we're going to install all these gadgets in our brains or a ghastly, horrible, repulsive thought, or, or, even, or even, you know, download our consciousness into, into a machine. What selfish and narcissistic thinking is that? Uh, we already have an incredible mechanism uh, for immortality. It's called reincarnation. Um, why would one wish to be a transhumanist with, um, and, 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 and keep the same body forever or download one's consciousness into, into a, a machine when, when the mechanism of reincarnation allows us to live many different lives and, and benefit from the learning experiences that those different lives offer? Now, of course, I can't prove that reincarnation exists, um, but I, I happen to think it does. I think it's just as likely. I think it was Voltaire who said, it's, you know, it's no more improbable to be born twice than to be born once. Uh, <laughs> and and, and actually, actually, why not? I mean, we could go into that. There's huge amounts of evidence for it. But there's, there's the thing. If, you're rein if reincarnation is possible, then we are not our bodies. Whatever we are, we're not our bodies, because those bodies surely die. We are not our bodies. There is some immortal part of ourselves, the soul, the essence, the spirit. That's what, that's what reincarnates. And the focus, I believe, of the lost civilization was upon that immortal essence of the human being. 
for a very long period of time, uh, but that it gradually fell away from that and, and devolved into materialism, but that primarily it was not a materialistic society. And we should not expect to find recognizable material traces of the kind of industrial technology that we've created in the 20th and 21st centuries. Do you feel as though shamanic plants, um, you know, visionary, visionary plants might have played a role in this, um, this study of our own mortality, of, of death in Egyptian culture? I'm certain they did. Um, indeed, the, Egyptian, the ancient Egyptians did put their best minds to work for 3,000 years on the mystery of what happens to us uh, when we die. And in that project, um, they had aid from a number of plant allies. Um, we, we know that uh, Nymphaea cerulea, the, the blue water lily, uh, is um, a, a, a mild visionary plant. Um, interestingly, uh, and it's my friend uh, Dennis McKenna, who is an ethnopharmacologist, uh, who's made this identification, which is that the ancient Egyptian tree of life, which you see in huge numbers of reliefs uh, around, around ancient Egypt, and often you'll see the god Thoth, the god of wisdom, writing the name of an individual upon the tree of life. That means that individual has graduated from earthly life into the life of millions of years. Well, it turns out that the tree of life is Acacia nilotica, according to Dennis's um, uh, estimation, and that Acacia nilotica is rich in dimethyltryptamine, uh, in, in DMT, the most powerful hallucinogen known to man. And the fact that it's the tree of life in ancient Egypt is really intriguing. And, and uh, we should absolutely consider the possibility that we do know what the ancient Egyptians were smoking. Would well, your own experience with ayahuasca give you any extra insights uh, at, you know, as to what happens after we die, as to you know, this possibility of you know, reincarnation and you know, my experiences with ayahuasca, again, I can't prove that this is correct. I can only tell you the, the impact upon me. My experiences with, with ayahuasca have made me understand that everything we do in this life matters. Um, everything counts. Everything, everything will be weighed up and, and considered. We are being given a precious opportunity to be born in a human body. It is a very rare opportunity in the universe as a whole. Uh, to be a human being, to have the fine powers of discernment between good and bad, light and darkness, that human beings do have to have the capacity for love and, sadly, the capacity for hate. Uh, all of these things are part of the miracle of being born in a human body. Uh, it's up to us to live up to that miracle, to fulfill it. Do we want to spend our lives just pursuing material goals and objectives? If we do, we will not be nurturing that non-physical part of ourselves uh, at all. And it seems to me that the ancient Egyptians were very focused upon this. And that's why, actually, you don't find remains of people's houses and personal possessions very much in ancient Egypt. I don't think they cared about that. Towards the end of Egyptian civilization, Herodotus visited that country and described them as the happiest people on earth. <laughs> They've been happy for 3,000 years, you know, and their happiness came primarily not from focusing on the material world, but for living life in a way that nurtures spirit. Ultimately, what we're all here to do is to give love, to, to act with love towards one another. That is, that is the fundamental truth that, that emerges from ancient Egyptian civilization and from all the civilizations. And the further that we move away from love, 
And the more deeply we get drawn down into materialism, the less chance we have of uh, fulfilling our mission here. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, think of a better way to end this talk. Good. That was, uh, that was profound. Thank you for that. Any, any closing thoughts? No, I think we've, um, I think we've, you know, wrapped it up in a fairly, uh, fairly tight way, which is good. No, no need to ramble on endlessly. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully we can do it again. This is, this is, this is like a dream come true for me. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be calling my buddies and be like, ah, guess who I got to talk to today? Great, great. <laughs> well, I'd love to do it again. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, definitely do that. <laughs>